Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour today is Chad Anderson. He's made a documentary film called Dog Valley, which tells the story of Gordon Church, a young gay man who was kidnapped, raped, tortured, and brutally murdered in rural Utah, as well as the stories of the two men who killed him, Michael Archuleta and Lance Wood. The film features an interview with Wood himself and delves into true crime and the long-term effects of trauma. Chad Anderson is a licensed clinical social worker, and uh, he is also a writer, author of the memoir, Gay Mormon Dad. He lives with his uh, two sons in Salt Lake City. Uh, Chad Anderson, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So happy to be here. Appreciate you uh, bringing this uh, documentary uh, to us, and uh, it's a very in- interesting, impactful, important story. We'll also be talking about hate crimes, hate crime legislation as we go along. That's part of the film as well. Uh, so how did you uh, come across this uh, this story? You know, I moved to Utah back in 2011 and uh, was kind of researching the history of queer people here. It was a new place for me. Utah has a very fascinating history. Uh, there's a number of cases over the years where uh, some of the crimes have been solved, some remain unsolved. Uh, but for those that were solved, there was very little justice administered to the men who killed these, uh, these gay men who had been targeted over the decades. In the case of Gordon Church, uh, it, was, it was very unique in its brutality, uh, as well as the fact that there was justice administered. The the two men who killed him were held accountable. There were, uh, you know, murder trials held and convictions that uh, that had resonance. Uh, so the case was unique for a number of reasons. Uh, and we, uh, or well, I began researching the story in depth. Uh, and at a certain point, realized this is something that needs to be, you know, seen and not told. It's such an important story. Gordon needs to be remembered for for who he was and why he mattered. Uh, not just by the people who loved him, but but by by all of us, uh, as we kind of learn from our history. Uh, so that's how I first became involved. And then at a particular point, I brought in uh, you know Jason Conforto and Dave Lindsay at Avalanche Studios to uh, to help me tell this story visually. And the three of us have worked together for the last several years to to uh, make sure that uh, that we could share this with others. Before we delve into the story, I want to. Uh, uh maybe delve a little briefly into your background. Interesting, uh, your background, which you recount in uh, in your book. Um, so you were raised in a, uh, a family uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint, Mormon family in, is, was it Missouri? Yeah, I was raised in, uh, in the Missouri Ozarks, where there's a lot of Mormon history, but not a lot of Mormons. <laughs> uh, and uh, I spent uh, my childhood there, and it didn't come out of the closet until I was uh, 32 years old. Uh, and moved to Utah afterwards. So I have a, a very different story than many people who are here locally, of course. And uh, Gordon Church, as we'll learn, comes from a fairly prominent family in uh, Delta, I think. Uh, Correct, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hear, uh, let's hear a clip from the film. This is very near the open of, of the film. Just alert to listeners, uh, there is a derogatory term uh, for homosexuals uh, used, uh, I think, by one of the perpetrators here. You'll hear um, Scott Burns, who was a prosecutor, I think, at the time. Um, you'll also hear uh, one of the perpetrators, uh, Lance Wood. So this is a couple minutes near the open of the film. I got a call at 2 or 3 in the morning. Uh, I was told that Lance Conway Wood was at the Sheriff's Department. Uh, Sergeant Frank Slack uh, is the one that called me, and he said he's telling me this tale about somebody that was murdered 
I think this guy is on meth or crazy, but could you come down and, and help me with this? Morning, we're at the Iron County Jail facility asking some questions to Lance Wood. Lance Wood uh, informs John Graff and Sergeant Slack that he had some information about a possible homicide. He told a horrific tale. So is me, Mike, and us too. We're driving down the road. All I know is that uh, he was driving and Mike slit his throat. While he was driving? While he was driving. And then cut his other Oh, it says, ouch, you know. Hey, what happened after he cut it? Cut him, dude pulled over. Uh, Mike had sex with him on top of the head. With the guy? With the guy. I stayed in the car while this was happening. He got out. And I know we picked up like a tire iron, started smashing his head. And I remember thinking, this is too violent, too sad, too outrageous to be true. Mike, tell you why he, he killed his church? Because he's a faggot. That's what he said. I was about ready to wrap it up, and then I remember looking down on his shoe, and I saw one speck of blood. And that changed everything for me. So that is from the documentary film called Dog Valley, and the filmmaker Chad Anderson is with us uh, for the program today. So Chad Anderson, that's pretty dramatic, uh, but for that speck of blood, uh, who knows? They might have not have taken uh, Lance Wood seriously in his confession. You know, I think that was the first sign at, at the time, back when they were doing the investigation in 1988, that Lance was more involved than he uh, than he made himself out to be. But I think there was so much evidence against him, ultimately, that I think they would have caught him still. The fact mm-hmm. that he turned himself in and tried to just blame it on the other person, uh, you know, he said, I witnessed a crime rather than I participated in one. So that speck of blood on the shoe, I think, was the first sign that he mu- had much more to do with it. But I do think they would have got him regardless. Yeah. This was a horrific crime, uh, you know, as, as you brought this documentary to my attention. Uh, I, I have some vague memories of that, you know, from, from 1988. Uh but um, I, I can't remember how long this was before Matthew Shepard. certainly didn't have the resonance that the, the Matthew Shepard case did. Yeah, 10 years. Uh, Matthew Shepard was murdered in 1988. And, you know, frankly, there are uh, many other crimes across the country that are, are similarly brutal, uh, particularly trans women of color are attacked and really brutally murdered quite often. But this one's unique in that it's a Utah story. I mean, we have hate crimes in Utah that we know about and that we don't know about uh, that stretch back into the 60s and 70s that are that are brutal in their own way. But but Gordon's was a particularly brutal story in just the the scope of it, the level of violence used. Uh, it's it's a really awful, uh, jarring story. And and just to note in the film, for those that uh, may want to watch it, we do try to handle. Uh, the brutality of the crime with as much delicacy as we can. Uh, we don't show any gratuitous images. We show instead more reactions and conversations about the violence. I wanted my own mother, who's nearly 80, to be able to watch this film uh, when I was finished with it. So we, we try to handle it as delicately as we can, but the brutality is certainly part of the story. 
Tell me about um, uh, tell me about uh, Gordon Church. He was a student, young, right? 18, 19? Yeah, Gordon. Uh, oh, st- well, when he died, when he died, Gordon was twenty eight. Uh, he he grew up in rural Utah in a very ah. very loving LDS family, and uh, at the time of his death, he was attending Southern Utah State College in Cedar City, uh, where he was dating openly. He. He had a very kind of private gay life. You know, people are often very closeted, even when they are out. Uh, he had a, a boyfriend he dated for a number of times. He had a number of friends he was out with. He was, uh, was going to graduate with a theater tech degree. Uh, he had his whole life ahead when it was, uh, when it was cut very short. Yeah, I, I did the math wrong. He died, uh, born in 1960, died in 1988, right? So, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so um, did his family know about, uh, about his uh, identity as a gay man? You know, questions questions about the family. Uh, I'm going to defer because they're just very private people uh, who who really are. You know, they, this was an unspeakable trauma for them. But my understanding from uh, Gordon's loved ones is that he was pretty closeted from the Mormon side of his life or from his upbringing. The the people he was out to were mostly those that he found a safety net with at, at college and and uh, in in a few other places. There was a there was an active community in Cedar City, small though it was, of people who were very supportive and loving toward that gay side of him. Uh, but I do think he was relatively private about it with the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Should point out the the church family declined uh, uh, offers for interviews for for the film, right? Um, yeah. So, but you did get an interview with uh, Lance Wood himself, with the Archuleta family. Uh, did get uh, quite a few of those interviews, including interviews with the uh, friends of Gordon Church at the time. What what yeah. did, what did they say about Gordon Church? Oh, uh, Gordon was wonderful. He was uh, he was small and slight in frame, uh, but he he was a very kind of nice, kind, private person. Uh, but when he was around the people who loved him, he was very much uh, just at home and himself. Uh, so we got to learn about this kind of, you know, private, studious person who was just good to people. But we also got to learn about this man who was just very loved and beloved by by the people who knew, you know, all of him. Uh, one of our most poignant interviews in the film is with uh, with Jesse, who was Gordon's boyfriend back in college. Uh, and just kind of the telling of their love story and, uh, you know, the impact of the trauma of Gordon's loss on Jesse's life. And Jesse's gone on to you know, marry and have children. He's he's very happy now, but this remains kind of one of the worst things that's ever happened. Still, still affects him. Yeah, there are some poignant scenes in in the in the film. Um, yeah, so, even even three decades later, it's really yeah, hard yeah. to talk about those first things you've ever been through. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell us about uh, Michael Archuleta and Lance Wood. One of the factors here is they're I think they're both on parole at the time. They were not supposed to be living together, but they were. Yeah, these are these are two Utah boys themselves. Lance grew up in a in a very Mormon family in Bountiful. Uh, Michael Archuleta grew up in a in a Catholic family in Salem, Utah, and uh, both of them kind of committed different crimes and ended up in the same jail cell and uh, became friends there. So when they got out of jail, they they had met a couple of girls uh, uh, while they were in prison. So I, I think Lance called into the radio station, met a girl who was a DJ named Brenda, who we interviewed in the film as well. And uh, when the two of them got out of jail on parole, they decided to move to Cedar City to be with these two girls. And technically, they should not have been living together. They had the, the same parole officer, uh, and, uh, and the, the crime escalated pretty quickly from when they got to Cedar City. 
Um, but yeah, they were both on parole and had met in jail in the first place. How did they uh, come in contact with uh, Gordon Church? You know, it's hard to know exactly what happened because the only words we have are from the men who committed the crime themselves. We obviously can't talk to Gordon. But my understanding, Gordon had been, it was, it was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving when all this happened back in 88. Uh, Gordon had been out with friends at the college that evening, and he had made plans to go out to some of his friends, uh, to, to dinner with some of his friends afterward. But he stopped by the local 7-Eleven where, uh, where these two men were hanging out. Uh, we don't know exactly what took place, but they uh, got in Gordon's car with him, and things escalated from there. So he, you know, he never made it to dinner with his friends. Uh, the following morning, he was supposed to drive his grandmother uh, to his family home for Thanksgiving, but he never made it there either. So his life was cut very short, right in the middle of a lot of things going on. Uh, and this, uh, as you say, the things escalated. Um... Uh, maybe just touch on the the high points or the low points in in this case. The, the, the brutality involved is just just horrible. Yeah, I, I I'll keep things uh, you know relatively PG for for the purpose of this. Uh, but but it is a if you read up on the crime, it's it's really really brutal and frankly very difficult to talk about. Uh, Gordon ended up being sexually assaulted. Uh, he was very badly injured uh, before they tied him up with chains and gagged him in the trunk of his own car. They drove about 100 miles uh, and pulled off. And the reason the film is called Dog Valley, he, they pulled off to a remote area of uh, central Utah, kind of near the Cove Fort area. It's nothing really there. It's just kind of an expanse of wilderness. I think people do some hunting, but they pulled off on a dirt road and, and, really brutally basically tortured him to death uh, and then left him there. Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a really jarring uh, and painful thing to, to talk about. And frankly, other crimes have been committed in this area over the years. Uh, really notably, Sharon Sant was, was murdered nearby uh, SNT. Uh, but there's been other crimes as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, just, just horrific. Um, and then the, uh, the the perpetrators they they drove his car uh, what to Utah County or somewhere Salt Lake County yeah they drove uh, they drove all the way to Salt Lake City uh, and kind of left his car there and then literally covered in his blood they hitchhiked their way back down to Southern Utah making kind of several stops along the way including at uh, Michael's parents' home where uh, you know Gordon's watch which they'd stolen off of him uh, was left behind. So they left his car uh, in Salt Lake City. It was later found and processed for evidence, just, you know, covered both inside and outside with blood. Uh, there was a lot of evidence that was later gathered as they kind of made their way back down south. I understand they went into a store covered in blood to get get new clothes. They, they said they'd been rabbit hunting or something? Yeah, yeah. We actually didn't put this part in the film. They, they stopped by a friend's house uh, where their friend wasn't home, but his girlfriend was. She says, you know, where did that blood come from? And they said, oh, we were out hunting rabbits in the woods. Uh, uh, Michael Archuleta's pants were so saturated with blood that he went into the local desert industries and purchased uh, a new pair of jeans uh, using money from Gordon's wallet that they'd taken. Uh, and then he threw his jeans in the canal nearby. Those jeans were later retrieved. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, some, some really... Yeah, awful things, uh, including uh, when when Gordon was still in the trunk, they stopped for uh, gas on their way north toward Dog Valley. So there's some some moments where they interacted with people who would later end up testifying at their murder trials, um, where it's just kind of scary. You don't uh, 
but for these people, you don't realize who's you know standing in your room or what they've done. Um, there's some scary moments along that story. So, so much evidence, um, you know, probably would have uh, come to light at some point, but uh, uh, apparently Lance Wood, I don't know, was in his mind panicked. Uh, he, he goes to a police to report a crime he, quote-unquote, witnessed. Yeah, I think he, I think he at the time, uh, thought that if he could pin this murder on Michael Archuleta, that, frankly, he could get away with it. I think he knew they were likely to get caught, so he spun it in a particular way. Uh, and and Archuleta did commit the more egregious acts of violence, but Lancewood was certainly involved and maybe even, you know, egging some of that on or, or making things worse. Uh, but he went to the gas station where they picked Gordon up, called his parole officer and said, hey, I have a crime to report. And then before his parole officer pulled up, he uh, he still had Gordon's stolen wallet in his pocket. He tossed it in the trash right there. So he's certainly very complicit. And we interview him in the film. Uh, the interview uh, was very unpleasant to conduct on my part. It was, uh, it was rough. He's a, he's a hard person to talk to. There's a, a level of kind of narcissism, and um, I think he thinks he's kind of winning you over when he talks, like that, uh, that people will believe him, but he, he's very, very difficult to listen to. People who watch the film have a, a, a pretty strong gut reaction to hearing him speak about the crime. He's, um, even all these years later, it's, it's still hard to watch. But we were also fortunate enough to get a lot of the original evidence gathered by the police that we're able to show in the film, including a videotape of Wood taking the police officers to the location of the body and talking about the crime on camera just the day after. Uh, so the the body is, so that obviously the body is is, is discovered, um, yeah, exhumed from a very shallow grave out there, right? Um, yes. And uh, the, the and and at, at trial, uh, both men, both perpetrators, are are trying to pin it on the other one, right? Yeah, they uh, they had uh, very quickly turned on each other in the initial investigation. Mike said Lance did it. Lance said Mike did it. Both of them were caught in multiple lies along the way as the investigation took place, and we're able to pinpoint certain acts of violence to you know individuals. For example, Mike Mike's the one that committed the sexual assault. Uh, we know that for a fact. But but it's hard to know who exactly did what when it comes to the brutality of you know the the, the torture and the beating at the end especially. And it's, I'll say, watching the film, it's kind of hard to to watch this. I mean, the you know the brutality of the of the crime. It, as you say, you don't uh, reenact uh, you reenact things in a way that it's you know it's not in your face. But uh, I think the, the one of the hard things for me was. Uh, you know, say um, Lance Wood uh, portraying himself as totally innocent. You know, I, I stayed in the car at all times, uh, <laughs> and Archuleta is doing the same thing, uh, completely yeah. innocent, right? Yeah, they 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 both act as though. Uh, again, we have the initial interviews done on cassette tape by the police where they're questioning the men, and they both act as if they're they're just kind of innocent victims. But again, they're caught in multiple lies along the way. Now, in the murder trials. Uh, Michael Archuleta ended up getting the death penalty, whereas Lance Wood got life in prison with the possibility of parole. Uh, Archuleta has gone on to spend, you know, over 30 years now in 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 a pretty rough circumstances and you know maximum security prison here in Utah. Whereas Lance has gone on to get married, uh, he's currently in a minimum security prison in Oregon. The two men who committed the same crime have had very different lives, uh, you know, afterward, which. A big piece of the film is exploring those concepts of justice and how it's administered. 
I do want to get into that. Uh, yeah, there's some speculation uh, about why both men are involved in the crime, why one gets the death penalty, why the other one's ended up in a minimum security uh, prison. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk uh, about that. And, and uh, some of your interviews with the, the Archuleta family, those are quite impactful as well. And uh, I want to, as we go along, I want to talk about uh, hate crimes, hate crime legislation. That's dealt with in the film uh, as well. Uh, we're talking with Chad Anderson. Uh, his documentary film is called Dog Valley. tells the story of Gordon Church, a young gay man who was kidnapped, raped, and tortured, brutally murdered in rural Utah. This was in the late 1980s. Um, he also tells the stories of the two men who've killed him, Michael Archuleta and Lance Wood. And uh, we will talk more about this following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and the Flower Shop in Logan, offering floral and planter creations for life celebrations and special occasions. Located at 202 South Main in Logan. Information available at loganflowershop.com or 435-752-1776. Utah Public Radio is seeking a full-time news director, and it could be you. It's a great opportunity to lead a team of motivated reporters serving UPR's statewide audience. The job features a competitive salary with excellent Utah State University benefits. For more information on this position and how to apply, visit upr.org. That's upr.org. The Moth is true stories told live without notes. Join us at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan on Thursday, October 21st for the Moth main stage. Masks will be required and proof of vaccination or negative test results to enter. Just like the Moth Radio Hour, this live show will revolve around a theme, with storytellers exploring it often in unexpected ways. Since each story is true and every voice authentic, the show dances between documentary and theater. Tickets are available now. Find a link at upr.org, and we hope we'll see you there. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. We're talking with Chad Anderson uh, for the hour. He's a licensed clinical social worker. He's also a writer. You can uh, check out his book, uh, Gay Mormon Dad. Uh, and he's uh, now a filmmaker. He has made a documentary film called Dog Valley, which tells the story of uh, Gordon Church, a young gay man who was kidnapped, raped, tortured, and brutally murdered in rural Utah. Before we get back into the story, I'll just ask parenthetically, Chad Anderson, um, that, that's it's quite an undertaking making a film. I would imagine you. Uh, uh, what did you hope to accomplish with this? You know, it's uh, it's not for the uh, the sleight of heart to make a film. Uh, you know, I've, I've I've written books and done articles and and um, done things over the years. Making a movie it takes a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of resources. I was uh, I was so fortunate. I I did a lot of the pre production work. I spent a couple years researching this story, and then I I took all of my work to uh, Avalanche Studios, which is a a local film production company there in Sandy, uh, and sat down with uh, with the the men who run the company and said, "I've got this story, but I've got no money." And uh, they believed in my passion and the story enough to work with me, uh, you know, putting a lot of their own time and resources uh, into into making the film. I could not have done it on my own. So, uh, shout out to Jason and Dave at Avalanche Studios who uh, who helped me kind of passionately carry this torch this torch forward. As far as what we're hoping to accomplish, my number one goal here is to see Gordon remembered. This type of story, although it's very difficult, teaches us so much about loving people who are different than us and understanding, uh, uh, you know, the, the world that we live in and how people who are gay or trans are impacted by society. 
Uh, it helps us understand our history. When you look at the brutality of a story like this, it teaches us a lot about the world that we live in now. It's my hope that this is the type of movie that can change perspectives and change lives. But ultimately, you know, seeing Gordon remembered for the incredible person he was and what was lost when he was gone is, was my primary goal here. Uh, the film is shown at uh, various festivals. Uh, can can uh, folks access the film? Yeah, actually, just as of a week ago, we, uh, we've been able to put the film up online. So it's currently av- available for rent or purchase through you know, iTunes or video on demand. Uh, in time, we hope to have a, a more consistent streaming platform for it. But, but yeah, people can just look it up online on, on iTunes and be able to watch it from their own homes at this point. Uh, the name of the film is Dog Valley. Dog Valley. Uh, and the filmmaker is uh, Chad Anderson with us uh, for, for the hour. Again, before we uh, jump back into the story here, um, at the, the beginning of the conversation today, you said that this case was unusual in several ways, one of which was that the perpetrators were uh, caught, the perpetrators faced justice. That tells me that uh, I don't know how many of these cases uh, perpetrators do not face justice. Tell me about that. Uh, you know, as, as, I'll give one case as an example, and there's there's several over the years. In, in 1965, there was a man named George Moriarty who was killed pretty brutally uh, by uh, Gary Horning and Leon Dyer. Uh, they 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 took him up into Ogden Canyon and really really uh, hurt him and left him basically naked on the road. Uh, he was still alive, and when they saw that, they ran him over and threw him over the edge. I mean, it was it's just very very brutal, and the men were caught. But they served less than 10 years in jail for this really brutal murder. Uh, and there's, there's so many examples of that in every state, frankly, but in Utah itself. And a lot of the cases uh, remain unsolved. The case of Tony Adams in 1978 uh, remains unsolved. He was a black gay man who identified with the Communist Party, uh, really brutally killed. Uh, and later, the, the knife that was used in his death went missing from the police locker. There's, there's a lot of stories out there that are so important um, and they continue to happen, uh, uh, not as frequently, but, you know, gay and trans people continue to remain afraid at times, particularly in rural spaces, uh, but especially back then, where even trying to meet someone could result in, you know, uh, police arresting you or, or people attacking you. Uh, now it's safer in a lot of ways, but people are still scared. So these stories still matter, and in so many cases, there's still justice that needs to be served. We're talking with uh, Chad Anderson. Uh, his film is Dog Valley, tells the story of Gordon Church, <clears throat> a young gay man who was kidnapped, raped, tortured, and brutally murdered in rural Utah. Tells the story of, of the uh, the men who killed him as well, Mark, Michael Archuleta and Lance Wood. So uh, we teased this before the break. I want to get into this now. Um, very different paths. The, both men were convicted. Uh, indeed, there was so much uh, evidence, um, but Michael Archuleta was sentenced to death, and Lance Wood was sentenced to a life in prison term. And in fact, right now is uh, in a minimum security prison in Oregon. Why the why the divergent paths here? You know, it's it's impossible to say exactly why. When these decisions are made, uh, it's important to note both of these men had different murder trials. Both of them were held in Provo, Utah, uh, back in 1990. Uh, you have different juries. You have representation delivered in different ways, different stories being told. Both men did receive the same conviction. They were found guilty of first-degree murder. But after you're convicted, you enter the sentencing phase, and that's where they decide what sentence to administer. So there's a lot of stuff brought in. There's a lot of conversations to be had. 
Uh, you know, the families, the defense attorneys can bring in things to show. Uh, at the end of the day, Michael Archuleta was given the death penalty, and Lance Wood was given life, life in prison, which it, it's hard to know exactly what the jury members were thinking when they made those specific decisions. Uh, but they found a little bit more, uh, different juries, of course, but they found a little more sympathy for one of the men than the other, it seems. Now, Archuleta is still alive. He's still on death row. Uh, he's been there for a long time. And for a lot of years, the conditions in the prison for death row inmates were, were pretty brutal, very isolating. Now, they are a little bit now uh, more integrated into the wider prison population, but it's still, it's still a pretty tough life. Uh, and that's one of the things that upset me most when I started researching this case, is people were not remembering Gordon, except when his name was mentioned whenever Michael Archuleta's name shows up in the paper. Because people on death row, you develop kind of a notoriety, a celebrity status in some ways. Not that that's what Archuleta is looking for. But we, we get curious about those inmates. And so that's the only time people were seeing Gordon's name. And he deserves to be remembered very differently than that. Yeah, and I, I think... Um... There's a whole debate over death penalty, right? But uh, I think people wonder, well, if someone's convicted, uh, sentenced to death, uh, I mean, it takes decades. And, uh, you know, yeah. some, some of those men are, are predominantly men are, are never uh, put to death. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you have a complicated relationship with the death penalty itself. Uh, looking to, you know, Gary Gilmore, Blood Atonement, there's, there's too much to talk about there, but... It's very, uh, it's very unlikely that Archuleta will ever be put to death, despite the fact that his sentence, uh, you know, states it that way. There's, there's enough appeals and barriers in place. Uh, Utah has not, uh, has not carried out a death penalty conviction in, in, in many years. What do, um, what do um, Gordon Church's friends, uh, of course, the family didn't want to be interviewed, but uh, you have interviews with friends. What do they say about about this? Do, do they have concerns, same concerns that you raised, that you know, we, we focus on Gordon Church only when Archuleta's name came, comes up? You know, all of, uh, all of these individuals, it's, it's 30 years later when we do these interviews, they've gone on to have lives and families and, and you know, things happen. But the, the loss of Gordon for, for many remains, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to them. I think they haven't really followed the case. In fact, I, I probably brought a lot of that information forward, uh, you know, saying, here, let me teach you about these men and, and what I've learned about them and their families and what's happened to them. Uh, all of them seem, frankly, just relieved that they're off the streets and that these two men can never hurt anyone ever again. Of course, there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of trauma here, right, uh, that, which just resonates down through the decades. Um, uh, tell me about your interviews with, uh, with Archuleta's family. Those were the last interviews that we did. I met with the Archuleta family a few times over the years, and they were very hesitant to appear on camera. Uh, Michael Archuleta himself could not talk to us. He's still fighting his conviction, uh, and uh, you know, any, any attorney would recommend not speaking to anyone while you're while you're fighting a case. Uh, but the Archuleta family has never given an interview in in 30 years. They're they're private, compassionate, wonderful people. We sat down with, uh, with Michael's mother, Stella, who has since passed away, uh, and his sister, Peggy, uh, and both of them are the most compassionate, incredible, uh, frankly, Christ-like people uh, that, that we interviewed. Their, their messages of unconditional love toward their son and brother, who did this horrible thing, uh, while they remain so compassionate toward the victim, uh, Gordon, and, and, and the crime that was committed, 
it's it's almost hard to talk about. You you almost have to witness it by seeing the film. But they are just wonderful, wonderful people uh, who've done their very best to be to be uh, compassionate and loving over the years. Uh, Mike's mother, as an example, and we can't even tell this story in a film, but she's raised basically four generations of children uh, before her passing, uh, including Mike's uh, Mike's own children. Uh, she's uh, she's an absolutely incredible person. I still grieve her loss. So, how does what is your reaction to this? How do, how does this happen? You know, wonderful family, and uh, your son, brother, you know, grandson commits this horrible, horrible crime. You know, I think uh, if you look at your own family, for anyone listening, when we when we take it out a, a generation or so, you look at cousins and uncles and aunts. Families have a way of turning out very differently across the spectrum. You can have kids who were raised in really brutal homes who who wind up as model citizens, and you can have kids who were raised in homes of love who go on to do really dangerous things. Uh, I think the impact of this, and this is one of the stories we really wanted to capture in this film, is Gordon's loss did not just affect his own family and friends. It also affected the families and loved ones of the criminals themselves, the people who work the case, the community itself. I, uh, I work as a trauma therapist, and it's, it's really difficult to say how trauma is going to help or hurt people over time. Some people change for the better. Some really hold on to it for a long time. And Michael Archuleta certainly came from a place of a lot of trauma in his childhood. Uh, he was adopted by this very loving family uh, who, who did their very best, but, you know, it, it just happened. It, it's hard to find an answer as to why. I want to follow up. That's very interesting. You, you work with, uh, with folks who've suffered trauma. There can be positive effects, you say? You know, I, I think uh, that's, that's a difficult thing to say, but I think if you look on your own life and think of really rough things that you've been through, I think we have a way of we would never choose for those things to happen. We would never want them to take place. We wish we could change them. But in many instances, those traumas that we've suffered have allowed for growth and change and opportunity. And I think anyone who's suffered any type of trauma or loss can, can kind of look at that and realize, okay, the trauma impacted me in this way. I've grown in this way, even though we would never choose to repeat it. And frankly, we never quite get over what's happened to us. Yeah, that, I've heard that before. You never quite get over, right? But, uh, but I, it handled in the right way, um, uh, you know, there, there can be healing, I suppose, right, you would say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, uh, just as, as an example, if your mom passed away in a car accident when you're 10 years old, when you're 40, 50, 60 years old, you're still going to miss her. You're still going to grieve that she's gone. But your life moves forward. And in some ways, you've become the person you've become because of her loss. Again, not that we're grateful for it. That's not at all what I'm saying. But we grow. We humans, we are resilient. We are adaptable. We move forward. And, and trauma shapes us in that way although we would never hope for any type of trauma to take place ever. Yeah. Well, let's take another break. Uh, when we come back, I definitely wanted to jump in immediately uh, to uh, this the side of hate crimes, hate crime legislation. You, uh, you treat this in the film, and uh, debate's still ongoing about this. Um, we'll talk about that when we come back. We're talking with Chad Anderson. Uh, he's made a documentary film called Dog Valley, which tells the story of Gordon Church a young gay man who was kidnapped, raped, tortured, and brutally murdered in rural Utah. Tells the stories of the two men who killed him as well, Michael Archuleta and Lance Wood. And uh, that film is out and available. It's called Dog Valley. More following this.
Utah Public Radio is broadcasting in Spanish on a new channel. You can hear a variety of music and talk programs in Spanish from Radio Bilingue on UPR. You can hear it 24 hours a day at upr.org. Just click on Listen Live and then press the UPR 3 button. Utah Public Radio está transmitiendo en español en un nuevo canal. Puede escuchar una variedad de programas musicales y de charlas en español de Radio Bilingue en UPR. Puede escucharlo las 24 horas del día en upr.org. Simplemente haga clic en Escuchar en vivo y luego presione el botón UPR 3. In Maryland, a daughter's phone rings off the hook. It's either she's calling me or it's a member of the staff calling me that she's in trouble. From a Florida nursing home, her mom's calling with fears of another infection. Oh boy, I'm sorry, Carrie. I'm sorry for me, I'm sorry for you and everyone else. An old problem becomes even more deadly in the time of COVID. On the next Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with Chad Anderson. He's a clinical social worker, a writer, and a now filmmaker. His documentary film, Dog Valley, uh, is out and available. It tells the story of Gordon Church, a young gay man who was kidnapped, raped, tortured, and brutally murdered in rural Utah. This happened in 1988. Um, so let's hear uh, another clip from the film. This will get us into talking about uh, hate crimes legislation. I believe the voice we'll hear here is uh, that of uh, Representative uh, Lee Perry, representative in the uh, Utah legislature. This is from the film uh, Dog Valley. When Gordon Church was murdered in 1988, Utah didn't have any hate crimes legislation. But within a few years, uh, Representative David Litvak introduced a bill in the Utah legislature to protect all groups from hate crimes in Utah, including gay people. Unfortunately, uh, that bill was hijacked by a Republican uh, legislator, and it really was sort of gutted in a way that has made it unenforceable. The original hate crimes law just didn't cut it. In fact, we actually had a court case that came back that clearly indicated that the current hate crimes law couldn't be applied in most cases. It was that weak and that watered down that it was really, truly ineffective. Nobody wants to come to terms with, I punch someone in the face is a, is a misdemeanor, but I punch someone in the face because they're gay or they're black or they're Jewish makes it a felony. It's interesting that the pioneers who came to Utah um, came here trying to avoid hate and people attacking them for what they're believed in. And yet it took us a long time to figure out. And if we're going to have a law in the books, we need to have a law that works. And that's kind of how I came to the point where I told Senator Thatcher, I want to be your sponsor in the House side. So there's a clip from the film uh, Dog Valley. We're talking with filmmaker Chad Anderson. Uh, so let's talk about this. Um, at, at the time of uh, Gordon Church's murder, there was no hate crimes legislation. In fact, uh, I don't think there has been hate, hate crimes legislation until fairly recently in Utah, although there have been laws in other, other states. Um, and and uh, we heard there in that clip some of the concerns about it, that wrapping our minds around, you know, if you assault someone, uh, you know, it, it might be a misdemeanor, but if you assault it because of a certain reason, it might be a, a more serious crime. Uh, talk about this a little bit. 
You know, we uh, we hear uh, Senator Daniel Thatcher talking there. He he really pushed hard for hate crimes legislation to pass. Uh, we hear him use this in the film as an example, but he says there's an enormous difference between spray painting your girlfriend's name on a bridge overpass or spray painting a swastika on a Jewish temple with you know the words "die Jews" underneath. If you are treating both of those as a you know misdemeanor graffiti charge, there's a big problem. There's a difference between someone attacking someone during a robbery or targeting someone because of their race or ethnicity or gender identification or sexual orientation. When we look into that hate crime status, it escalates the crime to a different level. And every state, and frankly nationally and federally, we need to have these protections in place where there are harsher convictions for people who target others because of hate. The, uh, the argument I've heard uh, most often uh, is, well, we, we should have a penalty, right? If someone's convicted of a crime, there's a penalty, and uh, that should just apply across the board. You're saying that, uh, you know, some crimes target certain uh, segments of the population and, and therefore uh, should have a different penalty? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And it's up to the legislatures to sort out what those penalties are. But we talked earlier about the difference between, you know, convicting or sentencing someone, excuse me, convicting someone and then sentencing them. So the, the crimes are escalated to a particular point when there's hate involved. And, you know, speaking as a therapist and as a gay man in Utah, I grew up feeling unsafe. I was bullied at school. I couldn't tell anyone I was gay. When you are someone who's part of a minority, you become accustomed to feeling unsafe. It's its own kind of trauma. Uh, and when you grow up and somebody is targeting you for that same reason, it's scary. Uh, it's, it's, it's really frightening. So this is, you know, this is extending over generations, obviously, but we need protections in place for people who have been unfairly targeted, who have lived in fear for far too long. So what's, what's the law currently in Utah? We passed uh, legislation, it's called SB 103, and we document that in the film, where there are additional penalties involved for people who are convicted of harming or targeting someone on the basis of uh, of hate. And they've worked really hard to make that inclusive. Uh, You know, people worry that if we give special attention to minorities, then the majority uh, the majority religion, the majority public Republican Party, et cetera, they, they worry that they're going to be targeted. So the conversations turn to a lot of different directions. Uh, is, is it the same thing if you are the child of a police officer and you are targeted because your dad's a cop? Is that the same thing as someone being attacked or being gay? So some of that stuff is still, still sorting itself out in the legislature, but we do have hate crimes legislation in Utah now. Is that uh, the current law, is that sufficient in your view? I think always more can be done, but I am thrilled with what has uh, currently been passed. I think, I think it's an enormous measure. You know, gay marriage passed in 2015, hate crimes legislation passed here in 2019. We're seeing Utah slowly become more and more accepting and loving toward uh, LGBT people and, and uh, you know, people of different statuses. So I think we're moving in the right direction, but I do think there's a lot more to be done. Let's move the conversation broader. Um, what do you think of the current climate? Uh, are there are there you know, as a gay man, do you still feel unsafe at certain points, or, or you know, is the climate better these days? I have created a space for myself where I feel very safe in my home, in my neighborhood, in my community. Uh, I feel safe as a father. I feel safe with my partner, but frankly, when I go to more rural communities or neighborhoods where I'm unfamiliar, 
my partner and I don't feel comfortable holding hands walking down the street. Not that necessarily that I'm worried about getting attacked, but it's not that uncommon for someone to shout a gay slur or to give a lot of negative attention. Uh, it's my hope that I will always feel safer, that we can create more senses of safety in those other places. But I certainly do not feel safe everywhere I go. So you, you have you had that fairly recently, uh, gay slur shouted? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Probably last fall, most recently. Yeah, uh, I do think I do think it happens, and I think if you were to take a, a panel of, of you know gay and trans people, that would not be an unfamiliar experience to most of them. So how does how does how does that change? How do, how does society change in in that way? What what are the factors I, you think? I mean, I think if we're going in systemically, we have to teach our children differently. We've got to teach our children about LGBT issues in school. When we're teaching sex education, we teach all sides. When we're teaching history, we teach all sides. We teach tolerance and love. You know, the the way I'm raising my sons is I love you no matter what, no matter who you are. I don't try to put them in any sort of box. I don't say you have to be a particular sexual orientation or a particular religion or I expect these things of you. I'm raising them to be good, happy people who love themselves and are responsible for themselves. And as they grow older, they get to decide who they are. And it's my job as their parent to love them. And I think it's our job as a society to create that type of energy in our schools, our communities, our churches, so that people can be raised to know and, and to know history and to love everyone around them regardless. I'll talk a little bit about the experience of uh, making films, especially a film such as this, which I'm, I'm sure must have been in, in, in places hard, hard to make. Um, what, tell, tell me about that. There must have been scenes which, uh, which are very hard for you. You know, I'm a, I'm, I feel like I was uniquely equipped to do this film in some ways because of my experience as a clinical social worker. But, uh, you know, doing film interviews and sitting with people in their pain, witnessing, uh, and, and we made a decision in the film as an example to not show the crime scene photos. Instead, to, to show their brutality, we show my face reacting to the crime scene photos. And I, I still tear up every time I see that. Uh, being in those spaces, those emotions were real. I was crying through a lot of the interviews as I sat with people and they shared their emotions. Uh, but these are, it, it was relationship building. These, these people that I spoke with are, are still a part of my life now. They still cross my mind regularly. Uh, these are, are real people. This is more than just the story. These are our human lives. And I'm blessed to have had the opportunity to to tell some of their stories. Has has this experience had had an effect on you? I guess positive or negative. Uh, you know, putting a film out, making a film, which includes uh, you know uh, trauma, which includes brutality, but important message. Um, has that made a difference with you in any way? I'm uh, I'm good at self care. <laughs> I have to be with the job that I do, so I've been able to take care of myself along the way. Uh, so that experience has been positive to be able to share this story and, uh, and you know, see Gordon remembered uh, and the relationship building. The harder parts of making a film are finding funding and networking and trying to diversify your film in a world that's, you know, full of film. Uh, and then COVID-19 happened, and that kind of changed our whole trajectory. So there's been a, a lot of challenges along the way, but it has certainly been worth every dime, every, you know, ounce of blood and sweat and tears that I've put into this. Uh, I'm really pleased with the finished product. I, I, I feel like telling this story is uh, is one of my greatest accomplishments. I'm I'm really proud of the work that we've done here. Uh, so you earlier in the conversation you said uh, that you you hope that you know one of the main things or perhaps the main thing out of this film is that we remember Gordon Church. 
Uh, I wonder maybe you could talk a little bit about, uh, it, it takes imagination, of course, to, to imagine what Gordon Church would be today because he was murdered in his 20s. Um, he'd be in his 60s now, I think, right? Yeah, I think he would be turning 61 this year. I'm doing my math right. Uh, and the only the only trajectory to be able to determine that uh, he was murdered during the AIDS crisis, and so many gay men lost their lives through that, including some of his dearest friends, frankly. Uh, but the best example I have for what he may have become is by looking at Jesse, uh, the the man who dated him in college, who's gone on to you know form businesses and own homes and get married and have children and grandchildren. There's a whole future that could have been his, uh, and it's hard to know exactly what that future would have been. Uh, we have changed a lot as uh, as a society, and uh, I, I wish we could see what a snapshot of what his life could have been like had he been able to, to move forward with his life. Yeah, those scenes with Jesse are very impactful, and if you watch the film, uh, I guess you can, yeah, you can sort of imagine maybe Gordon Church's life would uh, have paralleled uh, uh, Jesse's in, in those ways. And that's also an illustration of you know, the, the effect of, of one life, right? Uh, Jesse still is, uh, you use the word traumatized, perhaps. He's, he's still very emotional when he thinks about his his boyfriend from, what, 30 years ago. Absolutely, yeah. And if you imagine someone that you were head over heels in love with dying in such a way, I think the only way to really understand that is if you've been through a similar trauma or know someone who has. That's, uh, that's something that's almost impossible to wrap our brains around. It's just so brutal. It's so horrific. Well, um, Chad Anderson, uh, you've uh, you know written books. Uh, you've now made a documentary film. Uh, is there what are you what are you contemplating next? Uh, you know, I, I'm a storyteller by nature, but at least at this time, I'm kind of just focusing on my family and uh, and kind of rebuilding life post COVID, which I think all of us are doing in a lot of ways. Uh, seeing the film get out there, I'm doing some podcasting right now and, and just building my business and raising my sons with my partner. Uh, it's a good little life here. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the next project will be, but I'll keep you posted when I've picked one. Yeah, yeah that'll, be, that'll be interesting. In the meantime, Dog Valley is out, you said, and available. Uh, people can just uh, look for it on their usual uh, platforms. Yeah, I mean, not, not, uh, you know, not Netflix and HBO. Those are, those are streaming platforms. But if you go to iTunes or Video On Demand, any, anywhere you like to watch your movies from, uh, from home, you should be able to rent or purchase Dog Valley. Uh, and then share the word with others. This is the type of film that can really change lives and perspectives. It's a, it's a hard watch. It's a gut punch. But it, it, it really is resonant. And you'll find yourself thinking about it uh, in both beautiful and difficult ways in the following days. Chad Anderson is the filmmaker. The film is Dog Valley. Uh, Chad Anderson, uh, thank you so much for telling us about it today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the work you're doing here on UPR. Thank you. Appreciate that. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Next on the Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll hear some of the exciting voices that are helping to introduce Latin music to mainstream audiences. I'm Dan Storfer. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Radio Latino, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
This is Katie Swain, the Membership Director at UPR. Over the course of our fall member drive, we heard from hundreds of you and your generous donations raised more than $50,000. Thanks to your support, Utah Public Radio can build stronger content, air better programs, and dive deeper into the issues you need to know about. Even though we've ended the honor portion of our drive, we're still a little short of our ambitious $60,000 goal and currently need about $8,500 left to reach it. If you haven't made your donation yet, please give today at upr.org to help us get there. And that number has gone down. We now only need $6,500 to reach our $60,000 goal. Thank you to everyone who has donated to Utah Public Radio. And if you haven't yet had a chance to give, you can donate now at upr.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. Up next on Utah Public Radio, it's the TED Radio Hour, followed by Reveal this morning at 11 o'clock. Whether you follow a faith or not, religion remains a powerful force in the world. But is it always a force for good? Hi, I'm Garvia Bailey. Join me for the Monk Debates. In this episode, former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and author Christopher Hitchens debate religion's impact on humanity from American Public Media. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. 